Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. The more you understand the symbolism, the typology of the Bible, the more richly you will experience the connection between the Old and the New Testament and the realities of Christian faith. Even in the psalm that we just sang, where the people rejoiced and counted the stones of Jerusalem precious. And then in the New Testament, we see that the stones were a picture of ultimately the people, the individual people of the Lord who are united with Jesus Christ. And we count them precious. This is what's going to last, not just some earthly monument. As we come to understand these things, they become more valuable to us when we read the Old Testament. And tonight is one such passage of scripture. Previously, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that there was deep significance in David finally being crowned king. And tonight is not less significant for human history in this world and also for, if I can call it cosmic history, the history of all things going out into eternity. What we're going to see tonight is the very famous section of scripture where David finally takes Jerusalem. He captures a Jebusite citadel and he converts that into the capital city of Israel. There is no question that this is incredibly significant in world history. Every single day to this day, we talk about Jerusalem. You turn on the news, something is going to be said about Jerusalem. So many centuries later, 3,000 years thereabout later, we speak of Jerusalem all the time. And this is where David is going to capture the city. But on another level, we're going to see that this has deep, deep spiritual significance for how we think about the church and God's plan for the church. So let's give attention to the word beginning at verse 6 of chapter 5. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing as we consider his word. Our Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that you would speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that Christ himself would declare to us his faithfulness, his purpose toward your chosen people. We pray that you would give each one of us a share in that inheritance described, pictured here in the holy city of God. We pray that you would be glorified as we are strengthened for all that is before us in this life. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage tonight, we really have one objective, and it's to answer a question, maybe two questions. That is, why did David desire to have that citadel for the capital city of Israel? Why did David want that place out of all the places? He already had a good capital. He was in Hebron. He had been there seven years. Why does he want that place... And then secondly, 
Does that in any way parallel the purpose of God in Christ for you? We're going to see that it does. As we look at this, we're going to examine it under four main divisions. We're going to look at four different desires that motivated David. This is a big turning point in history to go from having no lasting capital to having one that becomes the emblem, the picture of, you go to the last chapters of the Bible, the new Jerusalem. It is weighty. It is full of significance as you learn more and more about how God set up a picture in the Old Testament that would help you understand new covenantal realities. It's very important, especially for any children or younger people here, to kind of get the grammar of typology in the Bible. Typology is just all of the pictures that point forward to the greater realities of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to be considering together. Now, I'll announce each of the four reasons when we come to them. But first, notice how the conflict begins, because this will have bearing for the first reason David wants this city. Look at me at verse 6. How the conflict begins, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. The Jebusites are one of the original six or seven peoples who occupy Canaan. They are the original occupants. Here, it has every appearance of David going out with unprovoked aggression to take over somewhere. And certainly that has echoes for things in the news all the time right now, really always has. And if you don't know anything of the context, it is tempting to say, David is a bad guy. Why doesn't he leave the Jebusites alone? Why is he doing this? Why is he going out against these people, conquering them and taking over their city? There is a context to this, and it has everything to do with the first reason that David desires to have this city for the Lord. David's desire, first of all, this is the first of the four, is rooted in God's revealed will. God had revealed that he wanted something to happen. His revealed will was that the place where his chosen people were to dwell would be purified of all idolatry. Now, it was not perfect under the Old Covenant. Of course, there was always sin, and Israel would struggle with idolatry throughout their entire history. But in terms of open idolatry, God's will was that his people would go in and remove from the land everyone who is openly worshiping other gods. Remember that centuries before, centuries before, God had called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. That was an idolatrous area. Abraham himself was an idolater. He wasn't chosen because he was a good guy. He was chosen by grace. And yet he's called out of Ur of the Chaldees more than a thousand miles away to the land of Canaan. And God tells him that his descendants are going to inherit that land and that God is going to do so after, quote, the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. It's as if the Lord has a clock ticking on how much he's going to forbear in terms of the sins of the nations. And he appoints that Joshua and the Israelites who will come after him will actually cleanse the land of these people. I want to be very candid about something. That offends modern sensibilities, the idea that God would use one people to remove another people violently from a place. It doesn't just offend modern sensibilities, it offends human fallen sensibilities, period. And if you struggle with that, understand that's common. But what are we to do with that? 
David has a desire to carry out God's will, but God's will is rooted in something just and good. Appreciate with me for a moment. God is the creator. When we say God, we're not just, this is not a figment of our imagination. This is the ground of all being, the beginner of all things, the one who upholds creation, the one through whom all contingent things live and move and have their being. We are not just creatures, but when we speak of human beings, we are sinners. For that reason, no one has any claim upon life whether as an individual or as a nation, beyond God's sovereign determination to grant it. That is your only lease on life, that God would grant that. Hear what it says in Psalm 104, verses 24 and 29. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. You hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, and they expire and returned, and return to their dust. No one of us gives us the principle of life that animates us. No one of us gives us our own spirit. The Bible says that God forms the spirit in the womb. He gives and he can take. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 150,000 times approximately every single day, the Lord takes people out of this world young and old, rich and poor, male and female, from every nation. God is just, and he can use any means he chooses, and he can do so without sin. He can use disease, he can use disaster. He can use angels, as he does when he strikes down the Assyrian army. He can also use humans. And the Bible records that he even chose to use sinful humans as his agents to execute a divine judgment upon the land of Canaan. It wasn't because the Canaanites were more sinful than all the people in the world. It was not because the Israelites were more righteous than all the people in the world. But the Lord was bringing judgment that would be a picture of things to come. The reality that in the place of promise, the place where God's name will dwell forever, picturing the new creation, there is no room for those who worship another God. I want you to see one passage that relates to this. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Because this has a definite parallel with how you think about your place in God's city, in his Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 9 Here, the Lord through Moses is instructing the Israelites just before they're going to go into Canaan, just before all that war is going to start, just before they annihilate various groups of people and take over their land. Verse 4, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
To make that very clear, the claim that Israel had upon the land was purely covenanted according to grace. The rest of the people were dealt with justly. But had God dealt with Israel justly, they would have stayed in Egypt in chains. And that is totally a parallel to our circumstance as those who have been called out of the world into faith in Jesus Christ. If God dealt with you strictly, you'd be in the Canaanite situation. You would not have a right to this city. But the Lord purposed to create a place for his people that will be purified of all sin, of all enemies. David, in his place and time, was called by the Lord as a king to carry out that work. In Joshua's time, it wasn't completed. Joshua 15.63 says, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem at that time. Indeed, to this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. The Jebusites were the last holdouts of all those various groups. They're the last ones there. Now, David wants to complete the work. He wants to create a place for the people of God that is free of the temptations of idolatry. How much more committed is Jesus Christ to purifying the place where you and I are going to dwell forever? Will he not root out every idol from your heart? Will he not cleanse you of all opposition? And will he not cleanse the world of all who do not know him? All who will not know him. The Jebusites, mind you, were not innocent. They had had, if anything, more opportunity than everyone else in the land. They had lived there longer. They had heard of the miracles. Other people like Rahab repented. They did not repent. Revelation 21 is the famous New Jerusalem chapter of the Bible. And there you read concerning the final state of God's people. It says, Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter that city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the Lamb there, that is to underscore to you, it's not because you were more righteous, but the wicked will have no place there. And so David's first desire is that he looks at this city that stands as a mark against worship of the Lord, and he desires to fulfill his calling as a king. That's why in the text you read that David, it says in verse 8, hated them in his soul. It's not a self-righteous, I'm looking down on you hatred. It's a siding with the Lord, and that's the nature of repentance. Repentance is taking sides with God against all that opposes him yourself included, your own sin. David has that. So this is the first of the reasons for going up against them. There's a second reason. Not only does he desire to provide a pure place for God's people, but he desires to provide a secure place. And this becomes a picture of the security that Christ desires for us. Jerusalem was not perfectly secure. Obviously, David took it. And it did fall at other times. But you look throughout history, it takes something like a miracle, in the case of David taking it. We don't have time here. I wish to explain in great detail how astounding it is that David is able to take this city. This is one of the focuses of archaeologists to this day. It's really incredible. I did put on our church website, if you go to the pastor's blog, a brief video that describes the basically two ways that this could have been done. And then outside of that, it takes a Babylon the Great sort of situation to take the city. Why is that? 
Jerusalem, by God's sovereign purpose, he didn't go looking into the world and find, oh, this is a, a really good place to put my city. He formed the land. He formed where the water was, everything, to be a picture of what Zion is for you. So what is it about that place? It's uniquely defensible. First, it's set back from the, the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, you'd have to go well out of your way by ancient standards to get there. Then it's nestled among hills, so you couldn't even really see the city until you're practically there. And then once you're there, the main city occupies a place atop three prominences, three mountains. You have Mount Moriah, we'll return to that. You have the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion. They're fairly high, but then there's these deep valleys between them. Most famous is the Valley Kidron. And so, has anyone walked up, by the way, recently, say, Camelback? When you are trying to go up steep places and waging a war, and you're on the attacking end from the bottom, it's hard. Ancient warfare, spears and swords. Meanwhile, the people occupying the height have built fortresses with walls that are more than 30 feet high, made of thick stone. They are throwing down rocks on top of you. It's incredibly difficult to get up there. In fact, the Jebusites are so confident, it says, that they said to David, you will not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. And David, in effect, says, well, we're going to see who's blind and lame. From that day forward, he calls all the Jebusites the blind and the lame. Kind of like if they said, children can fight you off. And from that day forward, you call them children. On top of that, it's not just well fortified, but it has a perennial source of water. The Gihon Spring. Gihon Spring is famous to this day. It is a perennial spring, which in the desert, it's better than if gold were flowing out. This spring fed a city through thousands of years in the desert. You have a travel memoir from an Egyptian from Alexandria who came up two centuries before Jesus was born, who left an account saying that he just couldn't believe how much water the city, or the city of Jerusalem had. So no wonder David wants this for the people of the Lord, because if you've got water and fortifications, you can hold out a long, long time. David's desire for the people was a practical expression on God's part under the old covenant of what he desires for all of us. Safety, security, a place where we are not in danger. Of course it was fallible as an Old Testament picture, but in the New Covenant it is infallible. Consider the parallel in Revelation 21 when it describes the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21 describes the New Jerusalem, the people of God, as having walls going around where it says that they are 12,000 stadia. 12,000 stadia, what is that? Walls that are 1,400 miles high, not long, high. I'll tell you my position as a pastor, and it's not to tell you what yours must be. I do believe a responsible reading of Revelation 21 in its broader context, its literary context, is that that's symbolic. Just like Jesus is not literally a lamb, but he really is the lamb. He's not literally a lion. He is the lion. There it's talking about the people of God, not just a place. Don't get excited that there, there may be, I don't know, what we shall dwell in. But get excited for what it means about the people. 
And the people are pictured in terms as utterly defensible, invincible. Walls 1,400 miles high in an ancient context where people throw stones for warfare. It describes the gates as being 12 huge gates guarded by 12 angels, and one takes out 180,000 Assyrians in a night. And this is meant to picture to you that you, in Jesus Christ, through faith, are safe forever. You want to belong to this city, the Jerusalem, the city of peace. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Again, there was a time when I would have read that and I would have thought, well, there, it, literally someday I'm going to go to the New Jerusalem and I'm going to see a river flowing and I'm going to see all of these trees. As a pastor, I'll tell you, the more exciting thing to me is not some trees and water. It is that the Holy Spirit dwells among his people. Jesus said, all who trust me, I will be through the Spirit in them like a well of water coming up. You'll never thirst again. And the fruits of every kind, the fruits of the Spirit, that the people of God are verdant, are abounding in glory with a never-ending supply of all that they need. Right now are we not so dry, but not then. And the Lord gives us these pictures as a way of telling us what is promised to us in Christ, our son of David, son of David. He and Providence worked these things together so that we'd have a better understanding of him. Here's the third reason. The third reason that David desires Jerusalem, he wanted it to purify the place where we dwell, to give security in the place where we dwell. Third, as a source of unity. The city of God is meant to be a source of unity for the people of God. And it's a picture of the final unity. Recall in the context here, David is fresh off of a civil war. The period between when there was civil war and him going to Jerusalem is about six months. Fresh off a civil war. And there would likely be very great tensions about having the capital in Hebron where he was for seven years. The capital of Hebron at that point, it's way in south Judea. South in the area that Judah occupied. By contrast, the city that he wants to take is Functionally, in the very center, very close to the center of all the area that was occupied in David's day. And so it would be accessible to everybody. And on top of that, since it was owned by the Jebusites at that period, it's politically neutral. All of the tribes could look upon it as something that they all share. In our own history, is that not somewhat like how we think of the District of Columbia? That it's not this or that state, but it's its own thing. This would be a source of unity for the people of the Lord. Not only for the tribes, but God providentially places it among all the nations. Ezekiel 5, verse 5. Thus says God, this is Jerusalem. Even when you hear that, translate it in your head. This is the city of peace. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. The Lord says, I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around And this had everything to do with his providential purpose in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 
Isaiah 66. And let me pass to you a principle. I address this especially to those who are younger in the Lord, whether by reason of your age or just where you're at as a Christian. It will be very, very helpful to you as you read the Old Testament prophets to bear something in mind. When the Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets under the Old Covenant about new covenant realities, he does so using terms and images that would be familiar and make sense to Old Covenant people. When the prophets speak about the things to come, they describe them as in a way that's similar to the very time they live in. Let me give you an example of this. Under the Old Covenant, there were prophecies that described what Jesus was going to bring in the age to come under the New Covenant, and it's described as warfare. And so there were many people in Jesus' day who were expecting him to lead an actual physical war. But that's because the prophets were speaking according to the idiom of the Old Testament. And you will make a mistake if you then take all the Old Testament idiom and you impress that upon the New Covenant and expect it to look identical. James, when he stands up in Acts chapter 15, explains that that particular passage in Amos 8 that he's quoting from was actually talking about Christ conquering the hearts of people. And that's totally not what people were anticipating. And there's something similar here. There's an Old Testament idiom concerning Judah and concerning Zion but understand it in light of the New Testament. 66 verse 18. This is written about 650 years before, before Jesus is born. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them... I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. What's being pictured here? What's being pictured is that after Christ has come and the sign of the cross has been revealed, after the meaning of the gospel is known, the Lord's people will go out to all the nations and bring them to the holy mountain of the Lord but not the mountain that's actually in Israel. The book of Hebrews, where it says very plainly, we have come to a mountain. We have come to the holy Mount Zion, that which is in heaven. He's speaking of faith. Now then, what does it mean when it says that they're going to go out and they're going to bring these foreigners in chariots and in litters on mules and dromedaries? This is not counsel to you to go buy a camel and bring someone to Jesus anywhere in the world. It's using Old Testament idioms to speak of New Testament realities. Here, basically, do it with haste. Be urgent about bringing people to the Lord. That there is a yearning for them to get to that mountain quickly. And here the desire is for people of every nation to be gathered together into the Lord. As it says in Colossians 3.11, here there is not Greek or Jew, 
circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. And that means that we best approximate the city to which we belong, the true Zion, when we let the gospel be that which unites us before anything else. Our unity with Christ, our allegiance to him, before any other question of earthly distinctions among people. There's a fourth and a final reason that David wanted Zion for the people of the Lord. We've seen that he wanted it for purity, he wanted it for security, he wanted it for unity. The last reason is because he desired the people of the Lord to dwell closest to the promise of substitution. Now when I say substitution, I'm talking that God was going to provide someone, something in the, in the way to reconcile sinners to the Lord. Recall, when God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, all those hundreds of miles across the desert, he didn't just call Abraham to Canaan. In fact, look with me at Genesis 22. See what it says there. Genesis 22. This is, by the way, approximately 800 years before David captures Jerusalem. Genesis 22, verse 1. Abraham has been called to Canaan, and then it says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The Lord didn't just call Abraham to Canaan to live there. He calls him to a very specific mountain. He leads him to the very place where he is to offer up Isaac. People often make the mistake I believe, of confusing Isaac as a type of Christ. Isaac is arguably not the type of Christ. He's a type of the elect, of the church. God had made a promise that he would take for himself a people, that he would bless Abraham and provide him with descendants. The problem is, they are sinners. And someone must die for sin. God is just and holy. How can Abraham have his heir, his chosen one, the promised son, and yet also he knows that his son is a sinner? And God tells Abraham to bring Isaac up the mountain, and as they're about to depart, the servants ask Abraham, so where's the offering? And Abraham says, the Lord shall provide himself a substitute or an offering. The Lord shall provide. As Abraham is about to turn over his son to death, which he does in faith. He believes, well, God made these promises about Isaac that haven't yet come true, so he must be planning to raise him from the dead. That's what the book of Hebrews says. The Lord then alerts Abraham to a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, and that's what he offers. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, 
it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The testimony of God's promise to Abraham that all the world would be blessed, but that he would even show him in a picture that a substitute would be given, that God would provide himself a substitute. Even the picture of this sacrificial animal caught by its horns in the thorns, a picture of our sin, it is no wonder that David, who knew these traditions, would desire to dwell close to where that promise was, to the very mountain that God had chosen. It is upon that very place, the hills of Jerusalem, that Jesus is crucified long after that. Does that ever settle on you? It's not just like we look through the Bible for interesting pictures. We're talking about historical realities that long after come to incredible connections and that God has providentially worked in. If David desired his people to dwell close to this promise of a substitute, of God reconciled to his people, how much more does Christ desire his people to dwell close to the assurance that he does provide himself? Revelation 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, speaking of the New Jerusalem. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Where do we go to church in glory? We go straight to Jesus Christ. And he's pictured to you as a lamb, as your assurance. You don't go to him simply as a lion. That would be terrifying. He's the Lord Almighty. I should have obeyed him. Yes, you should have. You go to him forever, for thousands of millennia into the future, as your lamb. It is the enemy who stalks about like a lion, constantly wanting you to live in terror of the Lord and to flee from his presence. But it is the Lord himself who desires us to look upon him as a lamb. When we consider the desires that David had, they are just a small picture of the greater desire that Christ has for our purity, for our unity, for our security, and ultimately for your assurance. I leave you with this as an exhortation. When you come upon these ideas of Jerusalem in the Bible, when you hear about the earthly Jerusalem, which was just a shadow, make it a habit. Strive to think about what the real significance is and why for us this is a beautiful and enduring picture of who Christ is. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for having given to your people an everlasting dwelling. We thank you that you have chosen to make us the very stones, immovable, of which that city is constructed. We thank you that the cornerstone is Christ and that we are joined to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have placed us somewhere with abundant water, your Holy Spirit, who never runs dry. We ask that you would please nourish us and build us up. We ask that you would place within those walls all whom you are drawing. We ask that you would use our lives for it. We thank you that Christ did what seemed impossible. If it was hard for David to take Jerusalem, how much more amazing that Christ has surmounted every obstacle. We thank you for him. We praise him. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.